Well, I want to welcome you this morning, all those who are here, here in our sanctuary, uh, those I was able to be with a few moments ago in our summit service, all those who are watching at home. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. The church is a thing. Do you know what that means? The church is a thing. It's, it's not just an idea or a concept. It's it's not just a, a social construct. It's not just something that we've come up with that is a convenient way to organize people or accomplish purposes. The church is a thing that God has created. The Bible says God has instituted the church. There are only three things he's instituted. Do you know what they are? There is the family, and then there was the government, and then there is the church. But the church is really more than an institution. The Bible has so much to say about this. It tells us, first of all, that the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. The church is the bride of Christ. He loves the church. And so we, if we love Christ, we will love the church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and other places that we are, as the church, even here in Nacogdoches, we are the body of Christ. We are what Christ uses to accomplish what Christ does. Just as I use my body to do what my head wants to do, Christ as the head uses his body to accomplish his purposes, whether they be here in Nacogdoches or even in our families. The Christ, the church rather, is the body of Christ. The church is also the gathered assembly of the saints. You know, in the New Testament, the church is always a gathered group of people. And that wasn't just because they didn't have the technology that we have today. It was, it was by the very design of the Father. The church cannot fully be the church if we are not physically gathered together. Most of the commands in the New Testament, in fact, you can't do unless you're with other people, right? Love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, support one another, confess to one another. We're a gathered body. There are just parts of the church. There's just parts of the Christian life that you cannot do alone. The church is a gathered group. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 10 that it is a sin to neglect gathering together. So since there's this part of worship that can only be done uh, when we're gathered, then we have to ask the question about this pandemic. What should we do? These are unusual times. Well, I believe, first of all, that it is reasonable and godly for us to take sensible precautions for our health. When I get in my automobile, I put on my seatbelt. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to do. I think that's a very sensible thing to do. God wants me to take the precautions that I can take, but then God wants me to trust him. You know, some people get in an automobile and even though they have their seatbelt on, they still die, right? So the seatbelt does not completely mitigate the danger of traveling in an automobile, but it is, it is the wise precaution that I can take. 
Now, some people, I believe, the wise precaution for them to take is to stay home, is to protect themselves from this pandemic because there may be all kinds of medical reasons why it would be dangerous for them to get out. But let me just say, and this is not the thrust of my message, but I believe for the younger people in our church and our community, especially those that don't have special circumstances, I believe it is time to come back to church. I believe that what we lose by separating from the church is going to cause issues. It's going to have effects that we can't even foresee. It is time, if we can, if it's reasonable, to come back to church. You know, there will always be dangers. I am... Um, I think about the Christians in places like Yemen or Pakistan or Somalia today uh, who are going to church under pain of death, right? If they're caught, they could be executed for that. There's a risk. There's a danger. But those people want, want their lives to so count for the glory of God that they take those risks. Now, we need to be prudent about that. We need to be careful about that. Everybody's in a different situation. It's not right for one person to judge another person's situation, but I think it's time for us to, to do what's sensible, but recognize that the church in the New Testament is a gathered group of people, a gathered group of people. Now, another thing I want you to see about the church is that the church is universal. The church, when you read of it in the New Testament, very often it's referring to all of the believers who live on the earth at that time. The Catholic church with a little c, not a capital C, but the universal Catholic church, it's all the believers. But the Bible also talks about the local church. And that's what we've been seeing here in our study of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. We've been focused on the local church. Jesus sends these messages, seven letters to seven churches, local churches, there in Asia Minor. And, and these churches, very different. They had different problems. They they, uh, they were addressed in different ways. They had different opportunities. We're going to see that today. They are different churches. So there is the universal church, but then there are these local churches. Today we're going to focus on the church at Philadelphia. And the church at Philadelphia had some unique opportunities. It, it, it had a, a unique chance to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And, and the reason why I point this out today is because I believe the same thing is true of this church, of every church really, but, but today especially of this church. And I want us to look at the opportunity that the church at Philadelphia had. And I want us to look at the opportunities that I believe that God has put uh, before us. So let's look. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The Bible says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Now we'll stop there just for a moment so you'll know Asia Minor. Uh, so this would be modern day Turkey. Philadelphia was a city uh, not on the coast. It was a city a few miles inward. It was at a very important crossroads. It was on the tributary of a major river. And because it really stood between the cities in the west, such as Ephesus and the coast, and, it's, and, and on the other side there in the east, it stood before, well, really all of the east. In those days, that really was the, was the beginning of the end of the world. It was considered the gateway to 
the east. And so people saw this as a, as a very critical point of trade. So many tradesmen would be traveling back and forth. And so here's this church in a very strategic place in the city of Philadelphia. Some people have asked me, Pastor, we're, we're looking at these seven churches. How, how can we really understand how close together they are? And, and I thought about that some this week. If you were to make draw a triangle on our map here in East Texas from Tyler to Lufkin to Natchitoches back to Tyler. So you got that in your mind? Tyler to Lufkin to Natchitoches to Tyler. Uh, that's, that's just about the area we're talking about here with these, uh, with these seven, seven churches. So let's see what he says to the church at Philadelphia. Thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one opens. He talks about Christ having the key of David, the key of David, King David. And so this is the one that has the key. Jesus is the one who has the key that determines who can get into the palace, who can get into the throne room and who cannot. Jesus is the one who determines who gets to heaven. Just as simple as that. Look at verse eight. He says, I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Now, that's going to be our focus verse this morning. We'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 9. Note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. The apostle Paul said in the book of Romans that those who are true Jews are those who are Jews on the inside, not those who are Jews on the outside. And he was talking about those who go through the, uh, the rituals of, of religion does not, those people are not necessarily followers of the one true living God. And here was an example, an example of that. Look at verse 10, because you have kept my command to endure I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Now, if you are a student of eschatology, you know what this verse, verse is, right? Eschatology, the study of what's going to happen at the end. And it's interesting that there are, well, there are a lot of different groups, but the, the two primary groups probably in a in, in East Texas would be those who would call themselves pre-millennial, pre-tribulational Christians, okay? And then there would be the pre-millennial, post-tribulational Christians. And if you don't know what this is, that, that, it doesn't really matter. And it's interesting that both groups both point to this verse as the proof that they are right. Um, this verse does tell us, though, for sure that, that Christ is coming back to bring peace on this world. And, he, and it tells us that there's going to be a period of difficulty between uh, now and when Christ comes back. And, and the question of whether or not we will skip the time of difficulty or we will endure the time of difficulty is, is, is something for another message. By the way, I'm for skipping it, if you're just curious. But, but 
But the truth that we need to grab hold of here is that Christ is coming back. And he tells us that again in the next verse, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. What does it mean that Christ is coming soon? It doesn't mean necessarily that he's coming in a short period of time. Soon doesn't mean brief. Soon means imminent. He could come at any time. We may not see the Super Bowl today, and as far as I'm concerned, that's fine, right? If we just go on to heaven, it's imminent. Christ could come back at any, at any time. I want us to stop there and go back to verse 8 and, and, and read it again and talk a little bit about the door that was open for the Church of Philadelphia, and I think the door that's open for us. Look at it again, verse 8. I know your works. Look. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my faith. Now let me talk for a few minutes about the door. The first thing we should know about the door as it's often used in the Bible is that the gospel is an open door. When Jesus Uh, refers to himself, at least in one place, he says, I am the door. And if anyone would come in, he must come in through me. When Jesus said, I am the door, he's saying that the door is, stands for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the gospel? People get confused about that. It's a word that we use often in the, in the church, and it's a good word, but, but it's a confusing word. Now, the word itself just means good news. The gospel is good news. But when we use it in the church, we mean more than just it's, it's good news. We are talking specifically about the fact that Jesus Christ, through his life, his sinless life, his substitutionary death and his resurrection, has made a way for us us to be right with the Father. That's the gospel. So Jesus says, I am the door. And we know from this that the gospel and the open door, those things go together. What does Jesus mean when he says, I am the door? Well, first of all, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now think about a room and it's got a door. It's just got one door. So how are you going to get in the room? You have to go through the door. Jesus says, I am the door. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father through me. You can't get to Jesus. You can't get to the Father, I should say, by some false religion. People often believe today that as long as you're sincere about your religion, that that's enough. But Jesus said, no, sincerity will not get you to the Father. It's only through Jesus. You can't get to the Father by trying harder. You can't get to the Father by turning over a new leaf. You can't get to the Father by going to church. You can't get to the Father by joining the church. You can only get to the Father through Jesus. Jesus is the only way to salvation. But it also tells us when Jesus says, I am the door, that Jesus provides the path to salvation. He, he is the door. He is the pathway for us, to, for us to know Christ. Imagine that you're standing outside a fortress that has no doors and no windows, only thick walls. There is no way then for you to get inside that fortress unless somebody makes a door. But Jesus made a door. When he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, our sins are that fortress wall that's separating us from the Father. But when Jesus died for our sins, he made a passageway, a door, so that we could come to the Father. It also tells us that Jesus is 
an invitation to salvation. Uh, if somebody says, my door is always open for you, what do we mean by that? We mean that you're invited. Anytime you would like, come to my house. You're invited. My door is always open for you. Jesus, when he says, I am the door, he's saying the door is always open for you. It's an invitation for us to come. The door is the gospel. The gospel is the door. You know, people will say today uh, that I am too far away from God. Uh, I've been living so far away from God. I've been living away from God for so long and so far that it would be impossible for me to come back. Some people feel that they've just, they're just too far away. Some people uh, but believe that they're just behind too thick of a wall. There's just too much between me and God, too many sins, too much history between me and God. Some people would say, well, I believe that God, it, it's like he's in a high tower and I could never measure up to his lofty expectations. But then Jesus comes in the midst of all that and says, no, I am the door and you can come to the Father. How do we come to the Father? Not by trying harder, not by following some, uh, some Eastern religion that we've read about on the internet, but we admit that we're guilty of sin, and so we're hopeless unless somebody were to pay the penalty for that sin. And so we trust what Christ has done for us. And so we turn from our sins, and we embrace Christ, and, and we come to the Father, not on our merit, but on the merit of Christ, because Christ has lived a sinless life and died for us. When we trust Christ, then we become children of God. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the consequences of his sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. I'm saved from that death if I've put my trust in Christ. If I've put my trust in Christ. And so the gospel is the open door. That's the first thing I want you to know about the door that's mentioned here in verse 8. The second thing is that God opens doors for us. Look at verse 8 again. I know your works. Look. I have placed before you an open door that no one can close. Now, when you, when you study that phrase, open door, in the New Testament, you find that almost every time it's used to mean the exact same thing. When the, when the phrase open door is used in the Bible, it, it's referring to an opportunity to serve the Lord. And specifically, it's talking about an opportunity to serve the Lord by sharing the gospel. Over and over, you see that. I'll give you some examples. 1 Corinthians 16, 8. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened. When Paul used this word, he was talking about an opportunity to share the gospel, an open door. 2 Corinthians 2.12, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ even though the Lord opened a door for me for, for the gospel ministry. Colossians 4.3, pray for us that God may open a door for us for the world to speak the mystery of Christ. The point is that Jesus opens these doors for churches to give them an opportunity to share the gospel, to give them an opportunity to have a kingdom impact. And it's a privilege. We need to recognize that, that when God opens a door before us, and he has, that it's a privilege that we get to serve. I, am, I know a man who uh, had the honor 
uh, of serving as one of the guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Do you know what that is? Have you been to D.C. and you've seen those guards there in Arlington guarding that tomb? They do it all day, every day. Uh, and, and so uh, this man I know who was a part of that detachment for a time, uh, he was there in 1999, Hurricane Floyd. And so it shut down all the area of Virginia, Maryland, D.C. But the guards at the tomb just continued. They didn't take the day off. They didn't, uh, they didn't change things because of the wind and the rain and the, and the dangers of the weather. They just guarded right through it. And, and I've heard him tell the story of what it was like to stand there for hours guarding the tomb in that terrible weather. And I said, wow, that, that, was, that must have been hard. He said, no, pastor. It, it, I mean, it was hard, but it was a privilege that I got to serve something that was so important, so important to our nation. Well, when God has given us an opportunity to serve, it's a privilege that we get to serve something as important as, as the kingdom of God. So I want to tell you that while it's, it's told to us here in verse 8 that God specifically opened a door for the church at Philadelphia, I want to tell you about a door that I believe that God has opened for us. It's interesting that God didn't say this uh, th th this verse eight, this, this information about the open door, it's, it's not found in any of the other letters. It, it's only to Philadelphia. And, and perhaps, we don't know for certain, but perhaps that be, that's because they had this unique opportunity with uh, being on this trade route, the gateway to the east, that, that so many people were in and out that they had an opportunity to, to make an impact for the kingdom that the other cities didn't have and so he had this specific plan. He says specifically to the church of Philadelphia, I have placed before you an open door. And so I believe that God too is placed before our church an open door. And I want to talk about it for a few minutes. Uh, I think the best way to tell the story is to, is to tell it as a story uh, that started in March of 2020. So just about a year ago, uh, I really felt like as as your pastor, that our church just didn't have a, a clear direction. I mean, things were going well. Attendance was, was good. Attendance was high. Uh, finances were good. We were sending people on mission trips. Sunday school was good. Youth and children's ministry. We were just, we were trucking along. Things were going well. We were just wrapping up we love our church, which God gave us just great success there, both financially and with the project, and we were able to do so many things. And so we were coming to the end of that, but we really didn't have a focus. We really didn't have a challenge. There really wasn't anything that was drawing us together for us to say, this is what God has for us right now. And so I, I went away for about a week to a Christian retreat center uh, just to get away from the internet and get away from some of the some of the day-to-day -day stuff, and, and just try to hear from the Lord. And my prayer my entire time was, God, give me clarity, just as the pastor of the church, what, what it is that we need to do, where it is that we need to go, what should we be focusing on? And I came away from that week, I believe, with five things that, the God, that, that our Lord had put on my heart. Uh, now, these aren't new things, uh, and, and some of them we'd, we've been talking about for a long time. But five things, I felt like the Lord just gave me a sense of urgency about these five things. Now, we have to be careful. The only thing we know for certain that God has said is what? 
what's written in the book. You should always be nervous when somebody says, God told me, and then they share something. Uh, so, so it's not something like that, but I, I left that retreat after a week of prayer a little longer, uh, convinced that there were these five things. And I'm only going to talk about one of the five today, just uh, uh, we'll, we'll do these one at a time. Um, but one of the five, one of the five was that we ought to have a ministry uh, to the Hispanic community uh, in Nacogdoches. Uh, if you look at the numbers, the Hispanic community makes up the largest non-white ethnicity in NAC, and it is by far the fastest growing group of people. Uh, without going through the details, I can tell you that the Hispanic community is underserved in our area with respect to Bible teaching, gospel-focused ministry. And just like people in every other community in Nacogdoches, the Hispanic people who live here need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not need some pseudo-religious focus on ceremony and sacraments. They have that. They do not need some politically aligned liberation theology. They have that here. They do not need some sign-seeking, miracle-worshiping superstition. They have that. What they need is a church that will teach the word of God, that will proclaim the gospel, and that will help people be transformed by the truth. And I'm convinced that God wants us to be a part of that. We need to do this. And I believe just as God had uniquely positioned the church at Philadelphia so that they could step into this open door, so that they could serve those people in a specific way, I believe God has done that here uh, for, for us. Um, not only, though, do we need to do this uh, so that those people will better hear the gospel, uh, but we need to do this because this is what God has commanded us to do, right? I mean, I mean this, is, this is something that we should be driven to on both sides, both by the, by the need that we see, but also by how God is compelling us and commanding us to go. I think about Romans 10, 14 and 15 says, how then can they call on him uh, whom they have not believed in. And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent, unless they are sent by a church? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. I want us to have beautiful feet. And, and there is nothing that is more obedient to the command of Christ as he as he ascended up into heaven, and there's nothing that better reflects the activity of that first century church than that we would cross some barriers and minister to people that we wouldn't otherwise minister to. That we would cross an ethnic barrier, that we would cross a socioeconomic barrier, that we would cross a language barrier. If you look at what the first century church did, that was about 90% of it. You look at the, the Bible story from Acts all the way through the end of the Bible. You look at what Romans is about, or Galatians is about, or Thessalonians is about, or Corinthians is about, or Ephesians is about. It's all about a group of Jewish people who came to know Christ, but then decided 
excited that they would share what had been given to them to people who weren't just like them, that didn't live just like them, but they cared about those people and they were obedient to what Christ said. And so the gospel shared and it, I mean, the gospel spread and it spread primarily because people were committed to crossing, crossing a barrier. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, just before he ascended, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So the Holy Spirit is going to come. You're going to have power. So what's that power for? Here's what he says. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what God has called us to do. That's the story of the book of Acts. It's the story of the New Testament. And I believe it's what God's, God's put before us. Let me tell you some more of the story. So I came back in March pretty excited about this. I began to meet uh, with a few people to uh, get, get some input and begin the, uh, the process that, uh, that is required. But immediately there were some frustrations. And I want to tell you about four frustrations uh, that, um, that just brought everything to a halt. Uh, the first frustration you could probably guess, COVID. So we come back, I'm all excited, not just about this, but about all five things. I'm excited, we're gonna hit the ground running, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna do this for the glory of God, our church is gonna be excited about it. And then COVID happened. And so uh, we, like every other church in America, uh, we just put everything on pause. I really believe that this will be over in two or three weeks. And I was wrong, right? But I thought even two or three weeks later, it'll be over in two or three more weeks. It'll be over in two or three more weeks. And, and, and really our church and most churches, this is true. We have been on a strategic pause since March, right? Because we keep thinking that this is going to be over and it's not. And I don't know when it is. And I know everybody, you know, has got their opinion, but, but most people's opinions have been wrong over the last year. So I don't know what's going to happen next, but it put us in a pause and I was frustrated. God, I went away, you put this on my heart, you gave me an excitement and urgency about this and now everything's on pause. So that was frustration number one. Frustration number two was a financial matter. And so without going through all the details, there is, a, there is a, an organization uh, that reaches out to me fairly often and says, uh, we wanna do a ministry and we will pay for it. We just need you and we need your church to sort of oversee it, oversee it. So we'll do it. We'll provide the people. We'll provide the money. We just need you, pastor, to be the overseer of it. And so, and it's a good organization and it's a good project to do, uh, but it just hadn't fit. And so they've called multiple times and, and, and they've wanted to do this. And I've always just said, you know, not now. One day we'll probably do that, but not now, not now, not now. And that's, that's been going on for a few years. And so I believed, and, and again, nobody did anything wrong. I just uh, let my mind run ahead of uh, what, what was perhaps reality. Uh, I believed that this same organization in the same spirit would just pay for this. Uh, when, when it came to the Hispanic ministry, I thought I could just give them a call and tell them what I wanted to do, and it'd be done. They'd just pay for it. Just based on those other conversations that we had, I thought that would be the case. And I was wrong. I was wrong. So... I reach out to them and, and uh, you got a sort of a yes and a no and a yes and a no and a yes and a no. And, and, and so that wasn't probably the best route for us to go down. So I was frustrated on two levels. So we're on this strategic pause and the money I thought, and it's not a great deal of money to be honest, but the money I thought would be there was, was not there. And then frustration number three was a leader. 
So I told this organization, okay, well, if you don't want to, you know, partner with us financially, then, uh, then just give us the names. Give us the names of some people. Give us the names of some pastors that are, that are educated, that believe the Bible, that are gospel-focused Hispanic pastors uh, that we can, and I'll come up with the money and we'll, we'll figure it out. Just give me their names. I want to go meet with them. I want to get this started. And they said, well, actually, we don't have any names. We don't have anybody. They're just, at least in our pipeline, uh, there, there just aren't any Hispanic men who are qualified to be a minister, qualified to be a pastor, educated, vetted, all of the different things. We just don't have any. So now I'm frustrated at the Lord, to be honest. I'm frustrated times three. And, and then there was another frustration. Maybe I should have mentioned this to beginning, at the beginning. Just how are we going to fit this Hispanic ministry in our current schedule and in the, in the way we do church here? It just didn't seem like as much as the Lord had given me a passion for it, it just didn't seem like something that was going to fit. But then, over the last few months, God has turned all four of those frustrations around. And I didn't recognize it until the last piece fell into place. I didn't recognize what God was doing, but I, I look back now and I can see his hands all over this. Uh, first of all, the ministry fit. Uh, so halfway through COVID, we... We decided, and a little bit of an experiment, right? We decided to do the summit ministry, uh, partly because of COVID schedules and, and, and cleaning requirements that we felt like we needed to do in those days. So we start the summit service uh, with, with some optimism, but it was still a little bit of an experiment. But it has been a great success. The Lord has given us success. And so that has created an opportunity for us to do the Hispanic ministry that we really didn't have a good fit for it before. And then secondly, I met um, uh, Caleb Castro. And some of you know Caleb, his wife Ashley. Uh, she's a professor at SFA, young couple. Uh, grew up here and, and, and they're from the Nacogdoches area. When I met them, they were living in Fort Worth, and, and he was a student at Southwest Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, but our, uh, our, our associate music minister at the time, Austin, uh, had gotten married, and he was transitioning out as he and his wife were moving to Fort Worth. And I was looking for an interim. And so Austin introduced me to Caleb and said, this would be a great, a great guy to come in as interim. So I began to make, meet with uh, Caleb and his wife just to talk about whether he would be a good fit for interim. And I fell in love with this couple. I just, I was impressed with them in every way. Uh, so we brought him in as interim and then Caleb said, I'm actually interested. Uh, if the Lord opened the door, I'd be interested in being the summit minister because we were searching, of course, at that time for our summit minister. And so then that brought a whole nother uh, round of interviews and a lot more questions and a lot more serious questions. And, and again, so, so impressed with, uh, with Caleb and Ashley. Uh, we had a search team, the search team spent a lot of time discussing this and, and looking at it. And the conclusion we came to was that Caleb's best fit here is not as our summit minister. Caleb's best fit would be a Hispanic minister. Caleb is Hispanic. He's from Mexico and uh, speaks uh, Spanish uh, fluently. And it's his first language and uh, has a history of ministering in that community and knows what he's doing. And so we decided through the process that Caleb's best fit, Caleb and Ashley for us, the best fit was Hispanic ministry. Uh, but I really didn't see how all this was going to come together uh, until 
Well, I guess there are two more frustrations. So at the beginning of December, and I'm running out of time, but at the beginning of December, I, I do this every year. I just pray about my leadership as a pastor and what I should, how my leadership should be focused and how it should change for the upcoming year. And um, so, so here's what I believe that God was leading me to do in December. Stop the pause. You know, we're still just sitting on, on pause waiting for COVID to be over. And I just felt as if God was saying, listen, quit pausing. I, I don't know when it's going to be over. This, this may be our new normal for a while. And so we don't need to wait until something is over to do something. Whatever we're going to do, we just need to do it. It may be a little different because of the pandemic and we'll make adjustments where we need to make adjustments, but we just need to go forward. This is an important work that we're doing here. This church counts for something in Nacogdoches and it counts for something with the kingdom of God. And we don't need to stop. We need to go forward. And so that took the strategic pause out of the way. But still, I didn't see all the pieces come together until the, right at the end of the year. Uh, somebody stepped forward and just made it all possible financially. And again, like I said, it doesn't cost a great deal of money, but it does cost money that wasn't a part of our spending plan here at the church. And uh, somebody has just... Uh, uh, through a, a very special gift is just taking care of that and not just for one year, but for multiple years. And so when that happened, I saw that all the pieces had come together and it was time for us, time for us to move forward. If you look back at verse eight, I know your works. He says, I know your church is what he's telling the church. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. He says, I've placed before you this open door and I'm convinced that God has placed before us an open door to reach and make an impact in the Hispanic community. Uh, so this is something, first of all, that our church has done before. And I think that's interesting. And our church has done it well before. Uh, so this isn't brand new to us or to our church, but I think God has given us this opportunity to reinvest in this and do it in maybe even a bigger way. So what I want us to do, what I'm recommending for the church to do is to bring Caleb Castro um, on our staff as the leader of our Hispanic outreach and our Hispanic ministry. Uh, we'll begin by studying how other churches in the state of Texas have done this and been successful at this. Uh, we need some education. We need to know the best practices. And so we'll spend a month studying. He will spend a month studying those churches and bringing a report. We're going to put together a team of church members that can serve as an advisory panel uh, to help him to do that. And then we're just going to begin. Uh, so I'm going to share more information in this week's uh, pastor show, which is a video thing that we do release it every Wednesday on our webpage. And then next Sunday, I'm going to have Caleb and his wife, Ashley up here on the platform in both services uh, to introduce uh, them to you, let you hear a little bit of Caleb's heart and get to know him uh, best we can. And then the following week, uh, I'm going to ask the church uh, to affirm uh, this direction and to bring officially uh, Caleb Castro onto our staff to help us with this, with this ministry. And so we see here in this, in this verse that God opens doors, and I believe that God has opened this door for us. But very quickly, though, let me share one more thing. Not only does God open doors, but God opens doors before us. If you look back at verse 8 one last time, uh, look, I have placed before you an open door. God has not just opened doors generically. God has opened doors for you. God has opened doors for us. 
God has opened doors for you and your family and your workplace and your community. God has made a way for all of us to be a part of sharing the gospel and making a making an impact for his kingdom. And, and, and so with the privilege of serving comes the responsibility of serving. And with that comes the urgency. Jesus said, don't say four months and then the harvest because the harvest is ready now. Now is when we need to step up and make a difference. Um, you know, I hear people say, and this will sound like fussing and maybe I, maybe I mean it too. Uh, but, but I hear people say, Pastor, with some of the political changes that have happened in our nation, I am so worried that soon will be the day that we will no longer be able to share the gospel in our workplaces, in our community. Uh, we'll no longer be able to share. Pastor, I'm worried that the political changes that we have embarked upon, that that's where they're going to lead. So listen. You may be right. I have some of the very same concerns. But that's not the most important part of that statement. The truth is right now, we can share the gospel. Right now, we can share in our neighborhoods. We can share in our workplaces. But we're not. The, the, the obstacle for the gospel is not the government. It's us, right? And there may be a day that we can lament that we are not allowed to share, but that day's not today. Today we don't have an excuse. Today our church doesn't have an excuse for not figuring out a way to get the gospel all throughout our community. We don't have any excuse. We can't blame it on the government. We can't blame it on the Democrats, the Republicans. We can't blame it on the state or the federal. It's us. We're, we're the ones to go. And we can't, we can't, we have no excuse for not sharing the gospel with the people we work with and the people in our families and the people in our neighborhoods. The government is not our obstacle. We are the obstacle. I think about Ezekiel 33, and uh, I'll go through this quickly. It says, suppose I bring the sword against the land and the people of that land select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his ram's horn to warn the people. So there's a watchman and he, and he sees the enemy coming. And so he blows the horn to warn the people that the enemy's coming, the enemy's coming. It says, then if, if people hear the sound of the ram's horn, but ignore the warning, then the sword comes and takes them away, their death will be their fault. Does that make sense? If, 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 the, if the watchman blows the horn and people ignore it, then they will die and it'll be their fault. But... He says, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming, but doesn't blow the ram's horn so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they will be taken away because of their own sins, but their blood will be on the watchman's hands. Listen, God has given us a community here that we can reach. We have the resources. We have the freedom. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're the watchmen on the wall. We need to sound the horn. And that's true in our church, in our community, with the Hispanic community, in every community. And it's true in our, in our families, in our workplaces. God has given us the privilege. He's opened the door. We must walk through it. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment. 
Father, Father in heaven, I, I am thankful that when I was lost, when I had no inclination for anything spiritual, when I was living, living my own selfless, selfish life, that there was, uh, that there was a church filled with people that wouldn't ordinarily ever be around people like me, but they were willing to get out of their comfort zone, to cross a barrier, and to share the gospel with a punk kid like me. I'm thankful you opened the door for them, and I'm thankful that they walked through it. Father, today I believe you've opened the door for us as a church and as individuals in all of our different settings. But Father, thank you that you've given us the privilege of serving. Now help us to be faithful to walk through the door that you've prepared. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.